Louie, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Rose? Where we're going, we don't need Rose. No. I am your father. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. You're listening to After the Ending, the only film podcast where we tell you what happens after the ending of your favorite films. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Spring and Phil Edwards. Hello and welcome to After the Ending. I'm Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. And Phil, I want to take our listeners kind of behind the curtain for a minute here because I I want to share something about how we came up with this episode. I, I know that sometimes people like to find out how we do things kind of behind the scenes. So I thought this is one of those opportunities. How's that sound? Yeah. Yeah. Well, well what it is, we got a load of the dogs and we put like a, a number on each one of them and then we set them loose in the park <laughs> and the first ones find the way home. That's the ones that, that we picked the yeah. movies from. Okay. Yeah. yeah. None, none of them came back though. So you have to think of another way. <laughs> right. Well, uh, well, obviously we're, well, first of all, actually tell people which, which movies we're talking about in this episode, because that's going to tie in directly to what, what I'm talking about. Yeah. We're going to be going after the ending of 1988's The Presidio which stars Sean Connery and Mark Harmon, and also after the ending of 2000's Unbreakable by M. Night Shyamalan Ding Dong. That's right. Now, now, what I, I think that, that viewers might be interested, interested to know is that last week when we were doing our episode and, and we were at the end, we always decide what movies we're going to do next week. You and I spent about a good, what, 10, 15 minutes trying to find a movie that would go pair well with unbreakable that basically meant breakable yeah yeah that's right someone's <laughs> playing on the words breakable or something that's fixable yeah and things like that but yeah we, we yeah we we spent like i said it's good 10 15 minutes going is there a movie called breakable no something shattered something glass like just kind of like searching through every movie looking for a good movie title that might make a, a funny pairing with unbreakable and ultimately what do we come up with the Presidio. <laughs> yeah, and I'm sure you, I'm sure you listening out there have, as soon as we mention this, you've gone, yeah. What about this film though, and that film though, <laughs> right, and things right. like that. So if you get in touch with them, we'll read them and go, oh my god. Yes. Well, we we do know our listeners typically are smarter than us, so obviously, uh, obviously we couldn't come up with a good one. Uh, so we are talking about Unbreakable and the Presidio. But I just thought people might appreciate the fact that we really spent a lot of time trying to find a, a great match for Unbreakable, and even though it didn't pan out. That's that's the dedication that we have to uh, to our terrible jokes, I guess. Yes, but yeah, that's what happens when we can't come up with a decent pairing. We just go, you know, totally left field. Right, right, exactly. And I think this one, I think this one works. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my mine aren't linked, but yeah, it was a good mix. It was nice thinking about the Presidio again because, to be honest, it was a film I'd forgotten about. Yeah, it's one of those that I've always had a soft spot for. So uh, it was uh, it was fun to kind of revisit that one for me. All right, so let's get into it then, shall we? Yes, but uh, before we do, I'd, uh, I've recently been sent some copies of The Empire, the film magazine here in the UK, uh, because I hadn't read it for a while. They got in touch and said I wanted some and, you know, promote the uh, the magazine. And it's been great looking through it again on a nice sunny day. It's been most enjoyable. Life. It's all well and good looking online, but sometimes you just want to, you know, go outside, sit in the sun or go sit in the pub and have a read-through magazine, which is quite nice. But I've also got... Uh, a 10% discount if you want to subscribe to Empire Magazine. It's going to be on the, my site, liveforfilms.com, which is also turning 10 years old. Uh, but uh, it'll be on there, but I'll just put a link on, on the various podcast things. But the code will be livefilm, 
and that gives you 10% discount on a subscription. Now, let me just say, and this is completely unscripted and not not uh, not from Empire at all. I'm a huge fan of Empire Magazine, uh, and I'm I'm really jealous that they sent you a bunch of, of issues. <laughs> One of the pitfalls of Phil living on the other side of the world from me is that well, when he gets free stuff, I don't get any of it because it costs a fortune to ship it over here to the U.S. So yes. even though well, I'm vice a versa. yeah, well, vice likewise, versa. likewise, right? But uh, even though I'm a huge Empire Magazine fan, uh, I don't get to uh, partake of any of these. But I, I am really, I've been reading it for years. You can get it here in the U.S. Uh, at like Barnes and Noble and stuff. Uh, if you've never read Empire, I highly recommend it. It, it is hands down ten times the magazine any film magazine here in the U.S. is. I mean, it really is just amazing. I love it, and I wish I got it to read good. it. It is good. It's been good reading it, but you can get a digital copy as well, so you can get digital subscriptions if you want. But right. uh, they sent me all the ones with the lovely subscriber covers where there's not much uh, text. Oh, that's cool. And it's, uh, you know, alternate art. So I've got one with uh, Deadpool 2, uh, one with uh, a lovely drawn picture of Darth Vader, uh, and one with uh, Thanos as well, with the Infinity Gauntlet. Uh, Empire, if you're listening, uh, you know, don't forget about your big fan over here in the US. I would be happy to uh, to accept some, uh, some comp copies as well. Uh, I'll have a word with them and I'll make sure that uh, they put you on a, a no list. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate that, Phil. Now, I'll see what I can swing out. I'll do that. But uh, if not, I'll bring over a few copies when I see you in October for New York Comic Con. That sounds good. That sounds good. All right. Well, uh, so with, now that you mentioned that, uh, let's uh, let's get into the film, shall we? Yeah, let's do this. Do you want to kick things off with The Presidio? I do. So The Presidio, a 1988 film directed by Peter Hyams, who is kind of a journeyman B-plus movie director. Uh, he brought us uh, Time Cop, The Relic, Running Scared, Outland, and uh, Capricorn One, a, a personal favorite of mine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's, he knows his way around an action film. But uh, it stars uh, it stars Mark Harmon, Sean Connery, Meg Ryan, and the great Jack Warden. And this is one of those films that I'm sure a lot of people have forgotten about, but good chance that back in the 80s, either you saw it, and if you didn't see it in theaters, you probably rented it on VHS or you saw it on HBO, because I think it was in pretty heavy rotation at the time. Oh, you probably saw the trailer as well. Yeah, you didn't see that. Yeah, exactly. Film. But it's a fun film that that I, I I like. And so here's the breakdown: on the Presidio, which is the army base in San Francisco, an MP, which is military police, is shot and killed during a botched robbery. Enter San Francisco police detective Jay Austin, played by Mark Harmon, a former MP himself, who investigates the killing. He has to work with Lieutenant Colonel Alan Caldwell, played by Sean Connery, his former commanding officer, and the two of them do not get along because of their past. Jay begins a romance with Donna, who is Caldwell's daughter and who's played by Meg Ryan, and together Jay and Caldwell uncover a plot that sees diamonds being smuggled into the U.S. from Central America through the armed forces. Austin and Caldwell foil the plot in which Caldwell's best friend was involved, that's Jack Warden, uh, and he tried to do right at the end, it's important to note, uh, and his friend is killed during the shootout. Caldwell asks Austin to delay his report so he can bury his friend with full honors, and Austin complies. Caldwell ultimately accepts Austin's relationship with his daughter and tries to rebuild his own tense relationship with her. And that's how the film ends. That's very good, uh summing up with the film. Thanks. I don't want to keep it short. It's kind of your typical yeah. kind of, you know, cop military thriller. It's It's got that very particular late 80s action film vibe, kind of along the lines of like a like a No Way Out, you know, one of yeah, like yeah. that type of movie. Um, and it's it's hard to it's, it's hard to describe, I guess. But it certainly is that thing where when you watch it, you're like, OK, I kind of see where this is. You know what genre? What what sort of? It's not quite an action film. It's not quite yeah. a drama. It's not quite a comedy. It's you know kind of a little bit of a blending of all of them. Yeah, it's it's usually people you know suddenly realizing something, going, "Oh my god!" and then rushing out and going, "What are we gonna do? We've got to stop them!" and then 
some you know it goes quiet and then you realize the person that with is a bad guy and all that kind of stuff that's very very accurate actually so yeah um, but that is the presidio so phil why don't you take us through your day after okay well jay waited the two days he had promised before handing in his police report and the full story was released Caldwell started a full investigation into the smuggling operation to weed out the various connections and people involved in the conspiracy. It would entail a lot of work and could burn some bridges for him, but he was angry that the deaths happened under his watch. He also spent some time with his daughter building up their relationship again. He still wasn't happy about her getting together with Jay, but he knew that that was just the father side of him talking. Things gradually seemed to be heading back to normal, and that's my day after. Very good. I like it. Yeah, it's just uh, just taking things easy. I, I'm, I'm sure that's going to change, but uh, we'll see where it goes. Yeah, we'll see. Go on. What's happening with yours, then? All right, well, Austin and Caldwell part ways as colleagues, this time with a handshake and a begrudging smile. Caldwell says to Jay, You know, there is one thing I might be able to use your help on. That's my, my Sean Connery. You like that? Yes. <laughs> But then he shakes his head and says, nah, it's probably nothing. Jay and Donna continue dating, and although their relationship has its ups and downs, they make it work. Jay comes home from work one day and finds an official-looking envelope in his mail. He opens it up to realize it's an invitation from the Army to an award ceremony. He's being honored with a civilian award for his actions in revealing the diamond smuggling operation. He chuckles to himself at the irony, then picks up the phone to call Donna and tell her the news. There's no answer, so he tries her a few more times and still can't get a hold of her. An hour or so later, the phone rings, and it's Donna. She sounds like she's been crying. Jay, it's it's my dad. He's been shot. <sighs> and that's where I'm going to leave it for now. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> that's a very accurate representation of the soundtrack, actually. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Oh, I like that, though. Well, apart from the obvious shooting of Sean Connery. Right, right. Well, we'll have to see what happens with that. But meanwhile, let's see what's going on in your immediate aftermath. It sounds to me like he took a, a knife to a gunfight. <laughs> <laughs> he wouldn't do that. Uh, Jay and Donna's relationship moves along nicely. They'd spent some time with Donna's cousin, Lydia, who just got back from her honeymoon with Lieutenant Tuck Pendleton. <laughs> the strong resemblance between her and her cousin Lydia there. Yeah, huh? they did, really did. It, it, does, it runs <laughs> to the family. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, now, now Jay and Donna were looking at apartments when Jay got a call about a new case. At first he thought it was a joke, but it turned out it was all real. A Russian spy had been captured breaking into the naval base in San Francisco. <laughs> Kissing Donna goodbye. <laughs> it's funny that of all the films I mentioned, No Way Out is the one that I, I mentioned earlier. Oh, well, yeah, yeah. That's one, that's one way out. Uh, Kissing Donna goodbye, he headed off, but gave Coldwell a call to see if he knew any people he should speak to at the naval base. Coldwell gave him a couple of names that he trusted. At the naval base, Jay went through security and was just getting briefed on the situation when the alarm went off. He's escaping, called out one of the guards. And that's my immediate aftermath. Very good. I like that. I wish I had thought of tying it into No Way Out, which is one of my favorite, favorite films, but I, I didn't. So kudos to you, sir. Well, maybe I did and maybe didn't. Oh, okay. <laughs> mm, All right. But you, you see, I like, you, I like your guess because that was one of the things I was thinking of. Okay. So. I got you. Yes. Um, okay. What's going on then with your immediate aftermath? All right. Well, Jay arrives at the hospital a short time later where Caldwell is in critical condition. He and Donna embrace, and she cries into his chest for a few minutes. When she finally collects herself, Jay says, Tell me what happened. I don't know exactly, she manages. I came home and found him lying on the floor in a pool of blood. The window had a bullet hole in it. I immediately called the ambulance, but I didn't see anything that might help. Jay checks with the doctor, who tells him that Caldwell is critical, but stable for the time being. And Jay says to Donna, I've got to go look into this. Will you be okay if I leave you here? Donna nods, kisses Jay, and sends him out the door. His first stop is to visit the crime scene. 
He takes charge of the task force made up of MPs and San Francisco cops and tells them he wants a report of the initial crime scene findings in one hour. As he's driving back to the police station, lost in thought, he doesn't notice the white SUV coming up behind his car. In fact, he doesn't notice it until the SUV runs him off the road, right towards a cliff with a hundred foot drop into the bay below. Oh, good God. (laughs) And that is my immediate aftermath on my episode of Cliffhangers, apparently. Yes, yes. (laughs) Oh, my God. I got to keep him coming back for more, you know? Yeah, well, I want to know what happens. Well, we're going to tell you shortly, but first, let's get to your long term. Okay. Uh, The naval case still bothered Jay. He joined some of the guards in chasing down the alleged spy, and they'd almost got him. They'd cornered him at what the guards had said was a dead end. But when they turned the corner, he was gone. He seemed to have vanished into thin air, possibly with some of America's nuclear secrets. Putting out of his mind, he focused on the present. He looked at the priest and then turned to watch Donna as she walked down the aisle with her father. Coldwell glared at Jay, but then broke into a grin as the wedding ceremony began. The service went off without a hitch. Jay and Donna were married, and the reception was a fantastic time. Coldwell whispered to Jay how proud he was of Donna and Jay marrying. But if you tell anyone I said that, I'll kill you, he laughed. (laughs) After that, Tuck Pendleton wished them well, and Tuck asked Jay about the naval case. What was the name of the Russian guy, anyway? Asked Tuck. Uh, Jay thought about it. I think his name was Chekhov. And that's my long term. <laughs> oh, I see how it is. All right. You you got me on that one, Phil. All right. So It, it could have been. Yeah, but No Way Out is the more logical one. Right. It is. But I love the fact that you instead tied it into Star Trek Four of all things. Like, that's that's know, really it's, fun. It's sort of, it's the years almost quite you know close enough yeah yeah absolutely San Francisco and all Absol- that, yeah. no that yeah. works out perfectly I really like that <laughs> thank you thank you yeah nice I was just show. when it came to me I was just going oh my god yeah that was in San Francisco very yeah. cool yeah yeah it was the the, yeah. Nu- yeah. the nuclear vessels yeah that's right yeah. <laughs> okay that, that was my uh that was my long term for the Presidio what's going on with yours what's he's gone off the cliff oh no oh no well Jay manages to jump out of his car just seconds before it goes over the edge and plummets oh, to the bay below By the time he pulls himself back to the road, the SUV is long gone. Jay is shaken but uninjured, and he realizes he now has one advantage. The killers think he's dead. He makes his way back to the hospital. Donna's asleep, and Jay sneaks into Caldwell's room. Caldwell stirs, sees Jay, and manages to utter one word before he collapses into unconsciousness. Meridian. Using this clue, plus the forensic evidence, Jay figures out that Caldwell had stumbled onto an illegal sex ring operation being run out of the Presidio called Prime Meridian. And with the help of the army brass, he brings them down and captures the man who shot Caldwell. With the bad guys in custody, Jay returns to Donna at the hospital. You're just in time, Donna says. He's just woken up. The doctors say he's going to be fine. Jay and Donna enter the hospital room together. Caldwell looks at Jay and says weakly, Did you... Yep, I got him, Jay says. You did good, Caldwell says. Donna beams proudly as Jay smiles. Then they sit back and settle in as the nurse comes in with dinner. Oh, very nice. Thank you. All right, well, that was the Presidio. Phil, do you have any trivia for us about this film? Yes, yes, I do. (laughs) Okay, Uh, after the start of the film, the Presidio itself barely features in the rest of the film. Very true. Uh, Kevin Costner was originally going to play the Mark Harmon character, but he dropped out. Uh, would have been, you know, a bit of an Untouchables kind of thing going on again. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the shot of the aircraft carrier at the start that was coming into San Francisco, that was totally unplanned. Uh, the entire film crew and hundreds of off-duty soldiers were filming a stage parade, but when they saw the uh, the fleet coming in, they went, let's film that. So they did that, and that was what they mainly used for the opening of the film. It's a great shot, actually. It is, yeah, but it's, it's great that it wasn't. It's just right. it happened to be there I at was, that time. I was actually wondering about that, because I just watched the film again, like, yesterday, and I saw that, and I was like, did... I, 
Like that's a lot of preparation to get for one yeah, shot with an aircraft carrier, right? Like, right. It was like, was the Navy really that you know willing to just you know put an aircraft carrier into the bay? But apparently it, they weren't. Yeah. So that yeah. worked out well. The right, the right place at the right time. Yeah, yeah. That's very cool. And that's the Presidio. You know what? This movie made me miss Mark Harmon as a movie actor. Oh yeah, uh, you totally. know, between, I, do, I always liked him. Yeah, this and Summer School is one of my favorite movies. And uh, you know, then he got on NCIS and just you know, has been coasting along doing that show for the last 15 yeah. years, which is like, oh, come on. Well, to be honest, I mean, NCIS's character, and that could have been this character, but, you know, just as the years have gone by. I, I really, my very first instinct was to to have him end up being his character from NCIS, but I didn't do it for two reasons. One, because I thought it was too obvious, and two, I really don't like NCIS, so I was like, why do I need to give them any glory? You know what I mean? Yeah, same here. I was I was thinking about doing it as well, but I thought, no, that's just, it, yeah. That's it's just too obvious, so I, I let it yeah. go. I was trying to tie it into summer school, but I couldn't. Yeah, I thought of that too. Actually, I do yeah, love that movie. Yeah. So. Oh, me too. Yeah, but I always liked Mark Hamill. I wish he. I wish he just his film career just been you know had that. He didn't have that film, did he? Which sort of just went. Right. I mean, summer school is actually a decent sized, a medium sized hit, but he didn't have the one that made him like a, a real big movie star, a marquee star. And I wish he did because I do like him quite a bit, and I, I really liked seeing him in this film and, and the few films he did before he became a TV actor. Yeah, yeah. Or I, I guess returned to TV, I should say, because I, I believe he started off as a TV actor. But yeah, that was the Presidio. All right, very good. Well, let's move on then to Unbreakable. M. Night Shyamalan's Unbreakable from the year 2000, so long ago. Yeah, I know, right? But you think about that the, the Sixth Sense came out in 99, so it's like what a quick turnaround that was to get his follow-up film. This is one of my favourites of his. Uh, so, yeah, there's going to be spoilers because we're going through the plot. And also there might be spoilers uh, tying into some of his more recent films, if you haven't seen some of them. And maybe a certain film he's making now. So just so you know. Right, right. Uh, and before you go into the uh, the the recap, Phil, I just want to mention that I'm in the middle of some particular weather right now because I've got like big gusts of wind outside. It seems like it's going to rain, so uh, that might all tie into the climax of Unbreakable. So so we may have some live action sound effects. We might not, oh, but right. if you hear anything right. weird in the background, you'll know what it is. That's it. We don't. We spare no expense on this show. That's right. Okay, so it's uh, it stars. Bruce Willis, Samuel L. Jackson, and Robin Wright. And it starts in 1961 in Philadelphia, where Elijah Price is born with a disease that means his bones are very weak and brittle and can crack. And But he ends up growing up and owning a comic book store and being played by Sam Jackson. Uh, present day, we see security guard David Dunn, Bruce Willis, who's drifting through life. He gave up a promising football career and married Audrey after they were in a bad car accident. But the marriage is now falling apart and their son Joseph is suffering because of it. Returning from a job interview, David's train crashes, killing the other 131 people on board. But David is fine and has no injuries and wasn't hurt in the slightest. He ends up meeting with Elijah Price at his comic shop. And Elijah says David is a superhero. Obviously, David doesn't believe this at first. But uh, he thinks about it and realises he's never been injured or sick his entire life. The only weakness seems to be water or he can drown or suffocate, things like that. He also seems stronger. Elijah helps David focus and he develops a danger sense where he's, when he touches people, he can see any criminal acts they've committed or, or bad things they've done. David uses this and his ability to not be hurt to stop a family being killed. He almost drowns, but he gets the criminal. The story is repeated in the news, but they don't know David's identity. And his, his marriage with Audrey sort of gets a little bit stronger and his son uh, is made up that his dad has got these abilities. David goes to uh, an exhibition at Elijah's comic book store and when it ends, they shake hands and David sees the things that Elijah has done. He caused the train crash and many other terrorist disasters, 
which led to the deaths of hundreds of people. Elijah feels the deaths were justified to find David, who is the hero to Elijah's villainous Mr. Glass persona. David reports Elijah to the police, and Elijah was convicted and committed to an institution for the criminally insane. And that's unbreakable. Very nicely done. Very nicely done. Thank you. I mean, I really like this because the fact when I sat down and watched it, I had no idea it was going to be a superhero comic book movie. Right. Neither did I. Yeah. Neither did I. I, You know, I have a, a complicated history with Unbreakable, uh, largely due to expectations, I think. You know, I, I, I was one of those people, I went to see this, you know, it was only a year after The Sixth Sense, and I was expecting, you know, that level of amazing. And I think the first viewing of Unbreakable, I was very disappointed. It is a slower moving film in places. Yeah. And I was, I remember being disappointed with it for quite some time. And then when it came out on, on video... I don't think I watched it again right away, but I eventually got around to rewatching it and I gained a much, much different and better appreciation for it. And it is now a film that I enjoy quite a bit. Um, I think when you know what to expect and you're not, you know, looking for the Sixth Sense Part 2, you know, it's a much different film experience. And I, I certainly have been a victim to my own expectations, you know, in the past. I try not to do that anymore and I'm pretty yeah, good at yeah. it now. But but this is one. But I do really enjoy this film for sure. Oh, yeah, it was good. It's, it's mainly just a character piece, isn't it? But it just... Yeah. Uh... It just goes through some things. It's just when you start putting things together and you're going, oh, my God. Right. It's good. Yeah. I like it. Yeah, it's good stuff. It's if it's if there were real-life superheroes, it probably would be like more like this. Right, right, exactly. It is kind of a nice sort of look at what superheroes might be like in the real world as opposed to the more Marvel approach, which is great, yes. but very different. Yeah, definitely. But that's uh, that's what happened in the film. Uh, we, we should be seeing, after you know 18 years, there is a, a kind of sequel in the works. But uh, that's why we thought we'd do this now. But uh, what have you got happening with your day after? Okay, well, life settles into a rhythm for David, Audrey, and Joseph. David continues to quietly perform superheroic acts when he runs across a situation he can help in, but he doesn't go out of his way to find bad guys. It's not that he doesn't want to help people, but he realizes that unless he can stop an actual crime in progress, he can't just bring people who have committed crimes to the police as there will be no evidence and they'll just be released. He does phone in a lot of anonymous tips to the police when he comes across people who have committed heinous crimes. He fills Joseph in on his secret, but he keeps Audrey in the dark. He knows how worried she gets anyway, and he doesn't think this will make her feel any better. One morning at breakfast, as he's reading the newspaper, he sees something in the obituaries that concerns him. A funeral notice for a Mrs. Charlene Price. It takes a minute for him to realize where he knows her from, but he eventually lands on it. It's Mr. Glass's mother. And that's where we're going to leave things for now. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. I, I like that what you did because, yeah, you're right. That's it's always the thing I always thought if you're real superheroes, how would you how'd you fight crime? Where'd you go? Well, especially like yeah. now I'm, I'm a huge Spider-Man fan, but especially in the early ones, a lot of times he would just like web up people like robbers outside of the yeah. police station with a note saying these are robbers. And I'm like, OK, and now they're free because there's literally no evidence at this point. Yeah. And you stop the crime from happening. So. You know, that's not how the legal system works, <laughs> you know. So yeah, I yeah. thought, well, you can't just, you know, see that somebody had robbed a place and then take them to the police because where's the proof? Yeah, you got to get them in the act, haven't you? Or have right. proof that they've been doing it. Exactly. But yeah, I like the idea of them calling in. That's that, that's probably more realistic. Yeah, what I thought so. Yeah. I was trying to keep yeah. with the tone of the film and the sort of the, the world and the, and the rules that have been set up in the film. Yeah. No, good. I like it. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, let's hear what's going on in your day after then. Okay. With Mr. Glass or Elijah and the institution... David Dunn tries to go back to a normal life. The thought of all the people who died during Elijah's search for him weighs heavily on David. He knows it's not his fault, but he's alive and hundreds are dead. He also starts to think that maybe all that superhero talk was crazy, that Mr. Glass messed with his mind. His relationship with Audrey improves, but he keeps the vigilante side of things to himself. 
However, he talks to his son Joseph about all of the superhero nonsense and how it has to end. He's not unbreakable, he says. It's the real world, there are no superheroes. Joseph sighs and walks to the kitchen. He returns with a sharp knife. Cut yourself, says Joseph. If you bleed, then it's all nonsense. If you don't, then you keep helping people. Thinking about it, David nodded. He took the knife and put the blade onto his arm. And that's my day after. Hmm, interesting. Hmm, hmm interesting. I like that. I'm, I'm anxious to see which way you go with this because I could very easily see you going either direction with it and it would be just as interesting either way. Very cool. Yeah, that's gonna, it's going to start with him uh, with one arm. <laughs> <laughs> that would be interesting too, although slightly unexpected. Yeah, he didn't know when to stop. Right. He's unstoppable. That's the name of the sequel. He's not unbreakable. He's unstoppable <laughs> and unsmartable, apparently. <laughs> okay, well, that's mine. What's going on with your immediate aftermath? Well, David's fears have come true. With the death of his mother, Mr. Glass has come unhinged. The day after the obituary ran, David saw in the news that Mr. Glass had escaped from the mental institution he was imprisoned at. David tries to track him down and put him back in police custody, but he eventually realizes that super strength and psychic flashes via touch aren't enough to make him a good detective. He realizes he has no idea where Mr. Glass is and that he'll have to wait for Mr. Glass to make the first move. After his fruitless day of searching, he comes home to find his house eerily empty. He calls out for Audrey and Joseph, but there's no answer. On the dining room table, he comes across a note. It reads, Mr. Steele, if you want to see your family alive again, meet me where I first contacted you. Tonight at midnight, your nemesis, Mr. Glass. And that's where I'm going to leave it for now. Oh, I like it. All right, well, let's see. Okay. I'm, I'm curious. So let's hear what you got for your immediate aftermath. Okay. The knife hadn't cut him. The past month had seen David save 16 people, and the media were calling this mysterious savior the Wraith. David was seeing the worst of humanity, but also seeing the joy of those that he saved. He thought it had all ended, though, the week before, when the rapist he had stopped had pulled out a gun and shot David. It seemed he had missed, and David knocked him out in, in one punch. It was only later that night David found the bullet hole on his shirt, yet there wasn't a mark on his chest. David also kept a watchful eye on the news to see if there were any more people like him. Reports of a drunk in LA with powers turned out to be false, <laughs> and news of a man and woman with the powers of an ancient snake god in South America seemed too far-fetched. <laughs> it seemed that David was one of a kind. Elsewhere, Mr. Glass was doing his own research and plotting. So far, everything was going exactly as planned. That's my immediate aftermath. Very cool. All right, very cool. Well, that's uh, that certainly is interesting. Mm. Mm -hmm. Okay, what's going on then with your long term? What's Mr. Glass done this time? All right, well, Mr. Steele, David asks Mr. Glass as they stand in the cemetery under the full moon. Don't you understand? You have to have a secret identity, Mr. Glass says. David looks at the gun in Mr. Glass's hand. It's pointed at Audrey and Joseph. What do you want from me? Revenge? David asks. Do you think I'm that simple, Mr. Glass says? You did what you were supposed to do. But what happened after that? Nothing. I've been waiting for you to become your destiny, but you're still hiding, David. So you want me to what? David asks uneasily. I want you to become the hero you're supposed to be, the hero I need so I can become my destiny. I want you to reveal yourself to the world. And if you don't, your family is dead. Just then, floodlights snap on and David looks around and realizes there are a number of cameras pointed at him. You've got three seconds, Mr. Glass says, then takes aim at Audrey's head. David snaps into action and manages to throw himself in between Audrey and the bullets just in the nick of time. The bullets bounce off of him, and he quickly disarms Mr. Glass. Mr. Glass begins to laugh maniacally. In a few minutes, police cars stream into the cemetery, alerted to the events by the live broadcast Mr. Glass had set up. Just seconds later, a deluge of reporters flood the cemetery as well, and they quickly surround David and his family. 
As the police drag Mr. Glass away and the reporters close in, David can hear him yelling, I won, Mr. Steele, I won. The whole world knows about you now. Fade to black. Ooh, very good. I like that. Thank you. Yeah. I kind of thought that was like his whole point, you know, was really to, to was to create this superhero. Yeah, yeah. Good stuff. Thank you. Thank you. Mm. All right. Well, I'm curious to see how yours is all going to wrap up, Phil. So give us your long term. Okay, then. The fire had been a nightmare. It had raged through the apartment building, and David had saved as many people as he could. But he was just one man, and the fire moved fast. He managed to make it home without being noticed. He took a shower, but he could still smell the smoke. Going downstairs, he realized Audrey and Joseph weren't there. Calling them, there was no answer, no note. As time ticked by, he began to panic. He looked through the house, and then stopped near the front door. His blood ran cold, and he sank to the floor. There, leaning on the wall near the door, was a glass cane. Making inquiries, David was informed that Elijah was still in the institution, he hadn't left for months, and he wasn't talking. David never found his wife and son. Ooh. Physically unbreakable, he was totally broken. As the years passed, he wandered through his life, and eventually slowly came back to himself. He saved people when he could, so that others would not have to suffer like he had. Fifteen years later, David sat in a diner eating a sandwich. Mm. A news report on the TV mentioned the crimes of Kevin Crumb, who the media were calling the Horde. David unsighed and finished his sandwich. Wow. That's awesome. Thank you very much. Yeah, like, I mean, like, first of all, just dark. Like, I like that you went and it's just this really dark place, which is, I think, fits fits the film. But then I love the way that you tied it directly into, uh, we'll just say exactly what you tied it into. I don't want to give any, too many spoilers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, but really leading right up to where things kind of stand right now. That was that was cool. Very cool. Thank you very much. Yeah, I thought I'd go, I think it needed to go dark for me for this one. Yeah, just, no, it uh, worked. It worked yeah. very well, actually. I love Thank the you. fact that, they disappeared with the cane, but that Mr. Glass was still in the institution too. Like it's that it's that sort of unsolvable mystery type of thing. Yeah, yeah. Neat. He's done it all from being while well, being captured, which is always the best alibi. Right, right, exactly. I like it. Thank you. All right, now I have not a, an after the credit sequence, but for the first time ever, a deleted scene. Oh, okay. So, would you like to hear it? Yes, definitely. All right, so here it goes. This is a scene that they filmed. Couldn't find a place for it, so they cut it out. They put it on the, the Blu-ray as an extra feature, okay? Yeah, yeah, I got you. All right. The strange man, dressed like a totem pole, reaches into his medicine pouch and pulls out a mystical spell. I am the master of the Dark Knight shamans, and my magic will bring about your doom, he shouts at David. Master of the Dark Knight shamans, David says. That's a mouthful. I think I'll just call you M. Night Shaman. <gasps> oh, okay. And uh, End deleted like scene. <laughs> I like it. His his superpower uh, is to set up high expectations and then let people down. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God, what's he gonna do? Oh, he's he's just he's got out of chicken foot and he's, he's doing some kind of spell. Yep, yep, exactly. So, I like it. Uh, yeah, I thought of this idea. I just wanted to work that in, you know, because I thought it was funny. But then it obviously had no place in my ending whatsoever. But it was the very first <laughs> thing I thought of with for my after the ending. So I was like, ah, I gotta find a place for it. I'll do it as yeah, a no, I, scene. I, I like it. Thank it's you. Good. Thank you. All right, so that is Unbreakable. Phil, do you have any trivia for us? I do, yes. We've got uh, Charlene Woodard played Elijah's mum. That's why I named her Charlene, by the way. That little nod. Oh, very good, yeah. 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 But uh, the actress is actually uh, almost five years younger than Sam Jackson. Oh, that's funny. Uh, The film was shot in sequence and used a series of long tracking shots with stark shadows or unusual camera angles to mimic the storyboard flow of a comic book. Cool. The scene in the stadium where David brushes past the mother and child and senses that some kind of child abuse is going on is thought to be Kevin Crumb, who's James McAvoy's character 
in Split. Right. So there's a connection with that film there. Yep. And Elijah in the Bible was prophesied to return to earth to pave the way for the coming of the son of David, who was uh, a saviour. Yeah. And Unbreakable was the fourth film that uh, featured Sam Jackson and Bruce Willis. Can you name the other three? Uh, Die Hard with a Vengeance. Yes, that's 1995. Pulp Fiction. Yeah, 1994. And... There was one from the year before that, 1993. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and say I'm drawing a blank, although I'm sure once you tell me what it is, I will know the answer. Well, it'd be okay if you don't know, but it was Loaded Weapon 1. National Lampoon's Loaded Weapon Oh, uh, yeah, because Bruce Willis cameoed in that, I believe. Yeah, yeah, he's basically doing his diehard character. Right, right, right. Okay, all right. I don't feel bad about missing that one, although I do like that yeah, movie. It is, a fun, yeah. it is a fun movie. But that's uh, that was Unbreakable. Very cool. I like both the endings there. Yeah, yeah, likewise. All right, well, those are our endings for Unbreakable and The Presidio. Uh, now it's time to move on to our 100 years of Hollywood and 100 episodes in which we go back to a year from the last century of film and share our top 10 favorite films. And this week we are talking about 1992. So Phil, why don't you climb into your trusty time machine, take us back to the early 90s and tell us what the world was like. Okay, yes. Let's do this. There was lots and lots of dreadful things going on, so I won't dwell on them. But in many ways, it was worse than lots of other years. But anyway, uh, Paul Sa- yeah, 1992, the pr- British Prime Minister was John Major and the US president was George Bush Sr., the first one. Uh, Paul Simon was the first major artist to tour South Africa after the end of the cultural boycott. North Korea signed an accord with the International Atomic Energy Agency, allowing for international inspections of North Korea's nuclear power plants. Oh, yeah, that clearly worked out well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They've, uh, yeah, they definitely got nuclear stuff. Yeah, that was definitely uh, the Mar- <laughs> Exactly. Yep. Yeah, we've inspected it. They have nuclear yeah. weapons. They've got, Moving yes, on. They've got nuclear capabilities, okay. and we're not sure. Anyway, right. uh, the Maastricht Treaty was signed, which founded the European Union. Uh, the Los Angeles riots took place uh, after the police involved with the Rodney King trial were basically... Yeah, anyway, the results of that came out, and it lasted for six days, saw 53 people dying and caused $1 billion in damages. Wow. Here in the UK, the Church of England voted to allow women to become priests, and Cartoon Network launched. Uh, Usually, I have a lot more facts, but as I say, it was a lousy year. Right. And these were like some of the decent ones, and that included the Los Angeles riots, so there you go. Right, there you go. It was that kind of year. Yeah. But we also had the births of uh, Logan Lerman, Freddie Highmore, John Boyega, Daisy Ridley, Chloe Bennett... Caius, Caius Scottolario, Kate Upton, Selena Gomez, Paige, Charlie XCS, Cara Delevingne, Nick Jonas, Demi Lovato, Ezra Miller, Josh Hutchison, and Miley Cyrus. And I had the deaths of Dick York, Willie Dixon, John Ireland, Hal Roach, Cleveland Little, Fritz Lieber, Marlene Dietrich, Francis Bacon, Benny Hill, and Isaac Asimov. But that was 1992. All right. It's one of those kind of, mm, kind of years. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's also kind of that way for the movies, I think. Yeah. Yeah. There were some really good ones, but then, yeah, there was a lot of... You know what? I found that there was a lot of movies I liked in this year, but not very many movies that I would call really great. Like none of these are going to make the list for my favorite movies of all time. Maybe one or two would if I was doing like a top hundred. But, you know, it wasn't one of those years where it was like, oh, this was the year that, you know, movie X came out. That's just one of my absolute, absolute favorites, you know, of all time. Like it was like, oh, my top 10 list is all very enjoyable films, but very few of them are ones that I, you know, I watch all the time or that are, you know, the the real true place in my heart kind of films. Exactly, yeah. I know exactly what you mean. But yeah. let's get into it and share our films, shall we? Yeah, let's. Uh, do you want to kick things off? I will. So for number 10, I have a tie. It's my only tie, um, but I couldn't decide which of these two. I, one of them was going to end up at the number 10 spot, and finally I just said, I'll make them both number 10. It's My Cousin Vinny and A League of Their Own. Uh, two comedies, obviously My Cousin Vinny with Joe Pesci and Marissa Tomei. She's fantastic in it. She won the Best uh, Supporting Actress Oscar for her role 
role, which was great. Uh, League of Their Own, which is Tom Hanks. There's no crying in baseball. Um, yeah. You know, great films. I haven't seen them in a while, but I've seen them a couple times. I always enjoy them. Um, and they're kind of fun to watch when they come on TV, but they're not movies I go out of my way for. So that's my joint number 10. Yeah, both good, enjoyable films. Neither made my list. But totally both, fair. Yeah, totally fair. Yeah, uh, my number 10 surprised me. Okay. Uh, but it is uh, Under Siege, Steven Seagal. Really? Yeah. Okay. It's uh, mainly because it was on a couple of weeks ago and I watched it late on. Oh, all right. Uh, after I've been in the pub though, came back in, but I, I just watched <laughs> that might it. have something to do with it. Yeah, I watched it and just enjoyed the hell out of it. Yeah, it's, it's probably the only like Steven Seagal film which I actually enjoy. Yeah, uh, I just, I just because it just so, so oh yeah, I'm just a chef. Right. Oh, and right. he's going, oh, but anyway, right. uh, yeah, just it was just enjoyable tosh basically. Yeah. Casey Ryback. I don't know why yeah. I remember that's his character's name because I haven't seen that yeah. movie since 1992. But I, I and it's like I do know that he's just a chef. But you know, the captain knows that he's more than just a right. chef. But he just wants to be the chef because that's how he rolls. No, I mean it's probably one of his top two films. I, I just even when it came out and yeah. it was hugely popular, I remember seeing it in the theaters and being like, meh. All right. Well, my number nine is uh, was I guess kind of a little bit of a surprise to me actually. Not the same film, but uh, it is the Mighty Ducks. Starring Emilio Estevez uh, oh, yeah, and a yeah. young Joshua Jackson, but you know it's a very classic. It's you know it's a '90s kind of Disney Disneyfied update on the Bad News Bears. Uh, you know the sort of misfit hockey team led by a coach who doesn't want to be there. Um, and it's just it's a classic. It's a classic kind of formula, and it works really well. I always liked Emilio Estevez. You know, I was a big Brat Pack yeah, fan yeah. when I was a kid, and he was always my favorite. So you know, I. I I like I like the fact that he was in it. You know, it's just it's a fun film. It's got all the sports movie tropes that you need, and it's an easy film to throw on and, and kick back and watch for ninety minutes, or to put on in the background when you're doing other things, or if it comes on TV. Yeah, no, fair enough. Again, good film. It was not my list, but yeah, uh, my number nine. That was a double bill. The first one won't definitely won't be on your list. It's Twin Peaks: Firewalk with Me. <laughs> good call. Uh, yeah, David Lynch's uh, you know feature length film prequel to the Twin Peaks TV show, The Last Seven Days of Laura Palmer's Life. It's crazy. It's a hard watch for yep. lots of it, but I, yep. do, I do enjoy it. I was going to say it answers things, but it doesn't. Right, exactly. It gives us some idea what, what went on. Uh, but the other one is a film which I always remember watching and really enjoying. It's Bob Roberts, which is a mockumentary film that was written, directed by, and stars Tim Robbins, playing a character which was uh, he played on a, a sketch in Saturday Night Live where he's basically a right-wing politician who's a candidate for uh, a U.S. Senate election. He's, uh, he's He also plays music. He, you know, plays a bit of... You see, they do like a Bob Dylan skit where he's got this video with the, you know, holding the pieces of paper and things like that. But it's uh, it's all about this. He, he sings country songs, but he's also a conservative Republican. And it's shown the campaign. And as it's going on, you meet these different people. It's very funny. But then you also realize, you know, he'll do anything basically to get what he, he wants and he even pretends that he was shot and paralyzed and things like this. And but it's it's really good. It's done really well, and it probably should be uh, be watched again by lots of people over in the states <laughs> for, for no reason in particular. Right, no reason. I'm sure. Um, you know, while neither of those made my list, uh, Bob Roberts is one of those movies I absolutely cannot remember if I've actually seen it or not. Yeah, yeah. And Fire Walk with Me, I just don't like. Uh, I'm a big Twin Peaks fan, uh, but I'm not a big David Lynch fan, and so. Um, I don't like that movie. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's lots of Twin Peaks fans who don't like it. Yeah, exactly. Well, so. Exactly. All right. Well, my number eight is Rapid Fire, which was uh, Brandon Lee's sort of big U.S. debut film. Uh, came out, obviously, before The Crow. I really like it. It's just a fun action film. It's that very 
you know, early nineties kind of action film. It's light on plot, heavy on yeah. action. Uh, it's got powers booth in a great supporting role. Oh, I was like powers. Booth. Yeah. He's fun. Uh, Brandon Lee was terrific in it. Just, it was a really neat to see him sort of, you know, trying to do something a little different from his father, but there's some, some nods to his dad in there. Um, and it's just, it's a great streamlined action film that was never a big hit, unfortunately. Um, but I really liked it. So that's my number eight. No good choice. Uh, I mean, I remember seeing it when it came out. And I don't really remember much about it. Probably worth rewatching again. Uh, okay, my number eight is uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula, which this one was directed by Francis Ford Coppola and starred Gary Oldman in a brilliant turn as Dracula. We had Winona Ryder as Mina Harker, Anthony Hopkins as uh, Van Helsing, and we had Keanu Reeves not doing one of his best turns as Jonathan Harker. But uh, on the whole, I really, I really enjoyed this film mainly because the look of it. It's just the style of it and the way the costumes and the whole design of uh, Dracula. Is just incredible. Some great shots. Uh, as I say, Gary Oldman is just, he's spectacular in the role. It's a pity he just didn't quite gel as, as a whole, but uh, it's got some of my favourite you know, people in it. And I just thought it was a great adaptation of Bram Stoker's uh, novel. Yeah, I, you know, this is a weird film for me. I remember when it came out, I was in high school and I was so obsessed with it. I just, I couldn't wait to see it. I, I had the t-shirt before I even saw the movie. Um, and then I remember being disappointed in the film, you know, because it, like yeah. you said, didn't quite gel. But I, I still liked it, I think. But then uh, I watched it a couple of years ago. They put out like a special edition Blu-ray. And I think I liked it even less this time. I, I kind of was thinking, oh, maybe I'll gain a new appreciation for it. You know, it's 20 years later. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. you know, I don't have the expectations on it. And I, I think I really liked it less. Like I, So I just it didn't make my list because I really just don't think I like that film that much. It does look great. It has some neat moments. But as a whole, yeah. it's not a film that I enjoy. Yeah, that's the thing. Is that there are... Just some great scenes, but then it's just a little bit. It just doesn't quite, the chains aren't quite there just to make it just, you know, perfection. Right, right. Agreed. All right. Well, my number seven uh, marks the second appearance on my list of one Emilio Estevez, which is probably the only year where we have two <laughs> Emilio films on our li- on my list. And it is Free Jack. Uh, also starring Anthony Hopkins and Rene Russo, uh, and, and also Mick Jagger, strangely enough. But I, yeah, yeah. I really like this movie. I remember I saw it when it came out and I loved it. And I watched it a few years ago, and I think it really holds up. It's a fun science fiction action film. Uh, it's Emilio Estevez, this, this free jack thing is they take someone from the past, somebody young, they steal them from the past right before they're about to die, and then they bring them to the future and they put somebody who's about to die, you know, some old rich person's brain into their body, so they have a whole new body to live in. Uh, but of course, Emilio Estevez... Uh, you know, wakes up and breaks free and goes on the run. And and as we know by now, I love movies where characters just go on the run and have to be on the run like the whole time. And that's what this movie is. And I, I really like it. It's always been a film I've enjoyed. Uh, and it was a pretty easy inclusion on my list. No, excellent. Uh, I've never actually seen that one. I've read the oh, Philip really? K. Dick book it's based on. Yeah, I'm sure the movie's completely different, but it's really worth yeah, watching. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's a fun yeah. movie. I think you'd like it. Yeah, so, I'll have to so see track it, it's it down. On, uh, track it down. Streaming or something, yeah. Yeah. Good one. Okay, my number seven is uh, is Wayne's World. Good choice. The Mike Myers. Well, we all know Wayne's World, all that stuff. Saturday Night Live one. It's uh, probably... It probably would have been higher, but I saw it uh, about six or seven months ago, uh, and it, it hadn't aged quite as well as uh, as it probably could have. Right. But I remember when I saw it the first few times, because I watched it loads when it first came out, and oh, yeah. just thought it was brilliant, and, you know, he just laughed. It still makes me laugh, don't get me wrong, but uh, it's just it's showing its signs of age, basically. But uh, just lots of good memories, lots of good moments, some good music, some amazing cameos as well right and it's my number seven a gun rack what am i gonna do with a gun rack (laughs) 
<laughs> she, it will be mine. Oh, yes. It will be mine. Uh, well, you may have guessed, but my number six is Wayne's World. Oh, wow. Cool. Yes, yes. I like you. I love this movie. I, yeah, obviously it's aged a little bit, but there are still really funny scenes yeah, yeah, throughout yeah. it that, that hold up as being very funny. It might not work as well on the whole, but I mean, you know, the Bohemian Rhapsody scene is great. You know, there's just so many gags that really work and that are really funny. Uh, it's it's a it's a fun film. So I mean, it may be flawed, it may be dated, but I I love it and it's it's a favorite. So that's my number six. Excellent. Uh, my number six uh, could be a surprise uh, for Mike here. It's a Disney animated film. Ah. It's it's Aladdin. They don't often make my films, but uh, there. Wow. Yeah, they don't. I mean, I was wondering if this was gonna make your list. But I do like this. It's just because uh, it's got some cracking songs. Yeah. Which some of the, some of the catchiest songs out of all of the films. Yeah. The Disney films. Uh, it's got uh, Robin Williams just stunning as the the genie, mm-hmm. uh, and it was all sort of came out was at, I was at university, and I always remember like a crowd. It just seemed to catch on. I always remember my friend uh, James just kept singing, you know, Prince Ali. He kept doing <laughs> yep, that, but he, yep. he only knew like the first few lines of it. But uh, yeah, lots of us enjoyed it. Just lots of nice memories associated with it, and. Uh, that's why it's my number six. Yeah, I mean, this was really that that golden period of Disney where they did Beauty and the Beast, The Lion King, and Aladdin, you know, all within three years. I mean, so yeah. uh, really some classics. So I'm glad it made your list. I was wondering because I know the Disney films don't usually make it on there, but I kind of felt like if, if any Disney film is going to make it, Aladdin would have to be it. Yeah. Good choice. Yeah. Well, it's not my number five, but my number five is Lethal Weapon 3. Mm. Uh, one of the rare sequels that is, um, I think, equally as good as the as the first couple of films. Uh, you know, it's a lighter film than the first two, so I have a hard time saying it's my favorite of the series because uh, I really do think the first three films are all terrific. But there's something about the third film that I really like. I don't know if maybe it's because they give, you know, Riggs a romance in the form of Rene Russo, who makes her second appearance on my list after Free Jack. Yeah, yeah. But there's something about the third film that I really, really enjoy. It's, it's you know, it's just as good as the first two movies. Like I said, it's a little bit lighter. So if you're more of a diehard Lethal Weapon fan, maybe it's not your favorite. But I really, really enjoy it, um, and I'll put it up that up as a as a pretty perfect trilogy. We'll ignore the fourth film, <laughs> but those the first three are all really great. And I, I love Lethal Weapon three; it's a lot of fun. And they filmed uh, the the uh, building explosion was in Orlando when I lived there. It was a big event. Everyone went downtown to watch them implode the building. Cool. I didn't. I didn't go, but everybody else did. So. Oh, okay. It was, I was like at midnight. It was like at midnight or something in downtown. Yeah. I was young. I didn't. You know. Uh, yeah. No, that's an excellent choice. I do like the film. Did make my list. All right. uh, my number five is a Peter Jackson film called Brain Dead. Mm. Uh, over in the US it's often called Dead Alive. Uh, it all it's all basically set in New Zealand where this rat monkey bites this horrible mother. She turns into a zombie and then lots more zombies happen and her son tries to uh keep it all, you know, on the wraps and then fight them and you've got the great scene of a of a wrecking on you I kick ass for the Lord, all that kind of stuff. But uh, lots of funny moments, some amazing gore effects. It is one of the goriest films you can probably see. So much blood. It's got a horrible, weird zombie baby as well, but uh, right. it's. I remember seeing it the first time, just going, "Oh my god, oh my god!" Because <laughs> I'd seen uh, Bad Taste and all that, and then he did. Uh, you know, now he's known for doing Lord of the Rings and all these other things, and yeah. But uh, I just thought it was lots of fun, lots of gore, and it was a. Uh, yeah, I've got good memories of watching that with friends as well. Uh, very good. I, I, I'm not a big fan of this film, so um, I get it. Yeah, I think you mentioned before. Uh, yeah. Right, because I think we talked about it before, I think on the zombie list or something. But um, yeah, not yeah. not a big fan, but that's okay. I understand. It's a cult classic. I get it. It's not terrible. I don't hate it. It's just just not a fan. Yeah, no, fair enough. All right, well, my number four is a film, uh, Phil, that I don't think you can handle. Because you can't handle the truth. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you try me, Mike? It is A Few Good Men. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, well... 
Yes, it's uh, my number four is uh, A Double Bill and A Few Good Men is one of those films. Oh, very good. It, it's a great yeah. film. I mean, you know, I like Tom Cruise. I, I even like the film that much, despite the fact that it has Jack Nicholson in it, which tells you something. It, it once again reinforces the fact that, you, you know, you've got some weird taste. No, no, it reinforces the fact that I know what I'm talking about. It's one of the few films I can stomach Jack Nicholson in. But I yes, love a good trial right. film. It's got a good kind of central mystery, might be a strong word, but you know what I'm saying. Um, Tom yeah, Cruise yeah. is terrific, and it has that awesome scene about the, you know, you can't handle the truth, which is, you know, a classic. If any movie line from 1992 entered the public consciousness, it's that one. Uh, you know, you can still say that, and people know it's from a movie, even if they don't know what movie it's from. Yeah. yeah. Um, and and I, I just really like it. You know, it's got a great cast with Demi Moore and Kevin Pollack also in there, and uh, it's a really just engaging, exciting, kind of thrilling, you know, film. So that's my number four. Yeah, good film, good courtroom drama. That was my uh, number four, but it's a double bill with Last of the Mohicans, oh, okay. which was directed by Michael Mann and stars uh, Daniel Day-Lewis and Madeline Stowe. I just think it's a beautiful film. It's got some amazing, again, amazing shots. The cinematography is incredible. The filming all on location is just, you know, great use of light and all this stuff. It's one of the... No, I'm not a big fan of Daniel Day-Lewis. I know he's a brilliant actor, but often half the time the films, I just go, oh, no, I don't really like you. Right. But this is one of the ones I really like him because it was quite different to all his other roles he'd done. You know, he's like basically like an action hero. It's a good cracking story. It's always been a cracking story, but I thought this was done supremely well. It's got an amazing soundtrack as well, which I always like. Uh, but it's uh, my number four, Last of the Mohicans and A Few Good Men. You know, a lot of people have a really deep love for Last of the Mohicans. Like, it's one of those movies that people just really embraced. I never, I, I like it. It's fine. It didn't make my list. It, it's not a film that I love. I, I think I've seen it once or twice, and it's like, okay, it's good. Yeah. I, I can appreciate it. You know, Michael Mann, the the most humorless man in Hollywood. Um, <laughs> you know, I but I don't. I just I don't. I never got that that into all his it, films so. are comedies. <laughs> yeah, right. They're, they're all the world's worst comedies. Um, but but a good legitimate choice. Just not a film I ever really embraced that much. Yeah. Well, my number three is a film that is quite notorious. It is Basic Instinct. Wow. Well, I'm just. Hold on, I'm just going to cross my legs on this chair. <laughs> um, chair creaking, yeah. not me. Michael Douglas, Sharon Stone, of course. But, you know, almost more germane is the fact that it was written by Joe Esterhaus and directed by Paul Verhoeven, who I'm a big fan of. Yeah. You know, the thing, of course, is Basic Instinct got all this attention. I mean, it's a film that really rocked the world. It got so much attention. I remember I had to sneak in to see it because I think I was a little... No, I wasn't under 17. My girlfriend at the time was. She was a year younger than me. So we had to sneak in to, to be able to watch it together. Um, but I think what gets lost in all that is that it's a really good thriller, you know? Yeah, it's it's so much more than just that leg crossing Exactly, scene. yes. It has a lot of sex and nudity in it, but it's a really good murder mystery. Sharon Stone is fantastic in it. Michael Douglas is one of my favorites, you know? it's It's got a really great, thrilling vibe to it. And so, yes, there's a lot of nudity. Yes, there's that famous scene. But beyond all that, it's just a great, exciting thriller. And thrillers are really one of my favorite film genres. So I always think Basic Instinct is a great film, and I think it gets underrated for how good it is as a movie because of all the sensationalism surrounding it. But I, yeah, I think definitely, it holds up as a, as a really good flick. No, I, I totally agree. It didn't make my list, but yeah, I totally agree. It's a really good film. Uh, my number three is uh, Unforgiven, which stars Clint Eastwood. He also directed it, where he plays an aging outlaw, William Money, uh, who's a farmer, and then he takes on a, a job and unleashes his old self with, uh, against Gene Hackman. Also stars Morgan Freeman and Richard Harris, just some brilliant actors. I just thought it was a, an amazing film. Very good choice. You know, I've only seen Unforgiven the one time, and maybe that's part of why I didn't make my list. I didn't love it yeah. when I watched it. I feel like I need to revisit it, but when I was making my list, I had to go based on just what I, you know, what movies I remembered, and it, it was never a favorite of mine. All right, well, my number two has already appeared on your list. 
And as you might guess, it's a Disney animated film. It is yes. Aladdin. Um, and I think you said most of what it needs to be said about it. It's a great film, great music. Really, Robin Williams is what sets that film apart. His performance as the genie is just amazing. Yeah. Um, but it is one of the most action-packed and frenetic and exciting and funny Disney films. I love it. No big surprise to see it at number two on my list, I don't think, for anybody who's uh, been listening to the show for a while. No, yeah, I knew it would be high on your list. Yep, yeah. Yep. Okay, yeah. My, my number two film is one we went after the ending with way back in episode seven. Yep. It is uh, Sneakers. Ah, okay. That's good. It's the one, Robert Redford, Dan Aykroyd, Ben Kingsley, and lots of other amazing actors, Sidney Poitier, who uh, work uh, hacking computer networks and test security systems, and then they get involved in this uh, this scheme, which has been going on, but just amazing actors and a good comedy caper, some Brilliant bits. I always love the bit where you see Robert Redford trying. He comes, he's trying to get into a door, but it's a, it's a different lock than they anticipated, and he spends ages, you know, listening to what the, the advice they're giving him over his earpiece, and then he just kicks open the door. But uh, I do, I do like the film. Lots of fun, and it's my number two. I do like the film very much as well. Uh, it is a fun movie. I watched it again back when we went after the ending of it. I still enjoy it, but it's not one of my favorites. I think you like it more than I do, and that's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. All right. Well, my number one is. Army of Darkness. Groovy. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, the third in Sam Raimi's Evil Dead trilogy, and I know we've talked about it before, I think, on one of our mini-lists. Um, it's my favorite of the three films. It's really the one that made me into an Evil Dead fan. I can give or take the first two films. I mean, I like them, but, you know, whatever. But the third film is really the one I love. I love that combination of horror and comedy. It's got so many great quotes, and Bruce Campbell's fantastic, and uh, I just love Army of Darkness, so... That's my number one. That's an excellent choice. It's so good, in fact, that uh, my number one is two films, and Army of Darkness is one of them. Excellent. All for the reason you say, it's just, it's so much fun. It really is. But uh, I totally agree with everything you said about it. And my other number, my other half of the number one is uh, Quentin Tarantino's Reservoir Dogs. Very good. Yes, his first film, which just came from, seemed to come from nowhere and just flipped everything and is iconic. You know, the so many things, the snappy dialogue, the fact you don't actually see the heist in question. It's just happened. We saw a little bit before, and then it's mainly afterwards. An incredible cast doing amazing things again with that script, uh, and, a, and a stunning soundtrack. And it just Quentin Tarantino with that one film just just laid down the flag, saying, "This is me. This is what I'm I'm gonna do." I've watched an awful lot of films and listened to an awful lot of music. Right. Blew, blew me away when I saw. I went to sit with my dad and the two of us. We came out afterwards, just going. Oh my God, that was amazing! And uh, I think I watched it two or three times after that as well. Right in the cinema. So, yeah. It's my my number one, Reservoir Dogs and Army of Darkness, and that's a damn fine double bill. <laughs> yes, if ever there was one. I like Reservoir Dogs. It did not make my list. It probably would have been like my number eleven. Yeah, yeah. I didn't see it initially. I saw it in the wake of Pulp Fiction. Ah, okay, yeah, that yeah. as I think many people did. I went back and was like, oh my god, Quentin Tarantino is awesome, and I like it. I like it very much. It's a good film. But it, 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 but what I think kept it off my list is it's never the film I choose to go back and rewatch. You know, I've seen it like twice. I like it. It's got that you know that great scene in the middle that's really intense that's done so well yeah um but and it you know it's good for all the reasons that you said but it's never i'm never in the mood to go back and rewatch reservoir dogs so that kind of kept it off the list for me but it is a great film there's there's no denying it i do enjoy it yeah well that's that's fine but totally understand everything you just said especially seeing it later on after pulp fiction right it's hard going back to it so right all right well that is 1992 that's our list and that's going to wrap up our episode but before we go phil why don't you tell people what they can expect next week okay then so next week we're going to be going after the ending of daddy daycare and fight club 
which if you look at them a certain way, <laughs> the exact same film. I was just going to say, I was like, huh, I didn't think about the fact, but that actually is kind of a thematic pairing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And also doing our top 10 films of 1968. All right. Well, that will be a fun episode, I'm sure. Uh, the first rule of After the Ending is... Definitely talk about after the ending. Tell your friends. Yeah, spread the <laughs> spread word. The you, word. Know, you know, it's no secret here. Uh, but the second rule of after the ending is... Is, is you know, tell even more that's people, right. people you don't know. That's right. All right. Stay safe. Yeah, exactly. Don't get involved in a fight club because it's dangerous. You shouldn't get That's there. right. Just stick with the after the ending club. Ignore the fight club. It'll be happier and safer. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, that's going to do us for this week. So, as always, we thank you greatly for listening. I'm Mike Spring. I'm Phil Edwards. And we'll see you next week. After the ending. Yeah, lots, lots of those yeah. 80s films are like that. Right. I find you think, oh, yeah, all the action in it. You can watch it and you're going, oh, he's just run down a road and shot a gun. <laughs> right. I'll miss the car. Jay comes home from work one day and finds an official looking episode. I wrote an official looking episode in his mail. I don't know how you get an episode in the mail. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Mer- Meridian is often something that reminds me of something. Yeah, I was watching a Deep Space Nine episode at lunch while I was writing this, and it was called Meridian. Oh, okay. Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, that is the Presidio. Phil, do you have any Pretrivia? No. <laughs> no, I'm not using that. Let me do that again. <laughs> oh, good God. You may get some real-life sound effects as you're, as you're reading because I've got a lot of really windy wind. That sound, that's, that's dumb. Windy wind. <laughs> windy wind. Oof. Let me do that again. Now, I will, I will say, well, I won't say yet, actually. We'll come back to that. Okay. <laughs> Never mind. Okay. <laughs> but uh, what's going on with yours? What's Mr. Class? Mr. Class? What's Mr. Glass doing? <laughs> He's like, Mr. hello, I'm Mr. Class. Yes. We're, we're having a dinner party. Bring all your best manners. Make sure you know which cutlery to use. <laughs> exactly. Emilio. Sorry, that's like from uh, Night of the Roxbury. <laughs> what is love though, Mike? And who was standing there but Emilio Estevez. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I love that bit. <laughs>